right, friends. This year, uh, we have tried to gain a new perspective. Perspective about who God is, trying to see him as he presents himself in Scripture, who the church is, and then how we invite people uh, into relationship with Christ into our new family. And this has not been an exercise in creativity. We're not seeking something fresh. We're not trying to, to conjure something out of the air that would be more fresh or relevant. No, we're, we're trying to recalibrate our, our understanding from the New Testament, trying to understand maybe where we've lost our way, become corporate and institutional, um, a type of church life the New Testament knows very little about. I want to get back to the heart of the gospel. Now, the Bible is going to insist that a Christian is someone that enjoys an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. But in saying that, many people that would take on themselves the name Christian, they just, let's just be fair, they don't seem to have that experience. Right? They just don't. Okay, say, prove that to me. Try this. You ask someone, how do you know if you're a good Christian? Right? Now, I could ask you all, but I love asking Google because that gives us a sense of kind of on a national, maybe even an international scale. What are people thinking? And that comes up with all kinds of lists, but here's one. Okay? You ponder how you would answer the question, what makes a person a good Christian? And try this out. Okay? Avoid sin. Treat others with love, avoid temptation, and obey God's call to serve others, oh, and share your faith. Some might add to that, well, you got to read your Bible and pray and attend services. All right, list really isn't bad. All of those things are uh, commanded of us that would claim the name believer, Christian, But think back through that list. Which of those elements is relational? Like we, Christians are those that know God, that walk with God, that enjoy his love and forgiveness and power. And yet, when you look at a list, what makes a good Christian? Well, doing a lot of religious stuff. We have a problem, right? We just have a problem. Okay? Now, all of those activities should flow out of a healthy relationship with Christ. But if you start with the actions, at best, you are headed for a very joyless experience. So let's do a thought experiment. Okay? Let's say this Monday. So tomorrow, your neighbor comes over. And your hypothetical neighbor says, hey, their boss is putting a lot of pressure on them. And they're battling diabetes, and as the conversation develops, their marriage is really in trouble. It's a little bit on the rocks. What do you say? They say, I need help. I know what you need. You need to avoid sinning. Read your Bible a lot. And then come to a lot of church services. I think that will make you feel better. Well, maybe, maybe not. You might say, pray, confess your sin, and ask Jesus to save you. Now, what would your neighbors say? Some of you, not all of you, some of you are thinking in your mind, you're practically shouting, yeah, but if you try that, it won't work. 
Okay, you wouldn't say that here because this is like a church service, but you're thinking, yeah, I've known people to, to try that when their life is on fire and they sort of cry out to God and, and somehow it, it just doesn't seem like it works. Now, I've made some of you very, very nervous. Right? You're like, well, wait a minute. If we don't have that. What, what do we have? Okay? But don't you know people who prayed or did the religious thing and they're, they're still a mess? Maybe that's you. Maybe some people have tried to live the Christian life and there have been so many promises. They feel burnt. They feel betrayed or at least jaded because what didn't happen is they didn't develop a vibrant relationship with God and they're not experiencing all of those promises. They're doing the stuff. They're putting in their time. But I I don't know. Somehow, life is not joyful. It's not filled with fearless faith and living hope. So, if I've made you uncomfortable, it's because you're thinking, yeah, but all of those things are biblical. And I've been taught my entire life to do those things. But I would like to suggest what we need is the right starting point. Okay? Otherwise, people think that they can change themselves or make life work by doing stuff. Like by doing, they're going to become something different. And it just doesn't work that way. Right? They end up doing religious stuff. And religion kills lots of people. Religion doesn't give restoration. Now, I want to remind you, lest you you argue with me, I want to remind you that the Pharisees were the most religious people on the planet. And they killed the Son of God while quoting Scripture. Okay? So you see the problem here. It's not with the Bible. It's not with the religious exercises or what we might call spiritual disciplines. These are not bad things. But if you're looking for them to bring you into relationship with the God of the universe, maybe, maybe not. Right? It has to do with understanding. It's not too unlike trying to assemble furniture. You ever get, like, Ikea furniture or something like that? Like they'll sell it to you, but you've got to put it together. Now, what happens... If one of your children or grandchildren tears off the first page, <laughs> it is online. But you're looking at a step. If, you, you, if you've assembled furniture, I know this has happened. They're like, yeah, point panel A into slot C. And you're like, I, I don't have that slot. Right? What happened? Well, you missed a step. Or the instructions were written poorly. Probably both. And because of that, what they're telling you is true. It just doesn't make any sense. Right? Like something didn't get assembled, so I don't have slot C. Right? And those things, they should be so easy. And yet they seem like they take forever to put together. All right? So here we are. We're finishing a series on meeting the family. And this section of it, we're talking about how to invite our neighbors, our friends, our family into God's family. And to to answer that, I want us to look at how Jesus did it. Right? From the Gospels. And you might be a little surprised at his approach. So we're going to be looking at John 12. John 12 is our text for today. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you the context of what we're looking at. Jesus has spent three years teaching and healing and wandering all over Judea. And now he's come to Jerusalem. Right? We're going to see here um, Mary Magdalene anoint his feet with her perfume and, and wipe his feet with her hair. You're going to see him come triumphant into Jerusalem. And now we're going to pick up our reading in verse 20. And among those 
who went to worship at the feast, Jewish feast, were some Greeks. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew Philip, um, and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, and whoever, uh, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So today, we want to see Jesus as a glorious king. We want to ask what it costs to follow him and what we'll find when we enter his presence. Let's pray. Father God, from time to time, we need our minds recalibrated. We've just drifted into a faulty understanding. And Father, that's so dangerous so dangerous that we would offer people religion instead of you. Father, it would be so dangerous for us to give ourselves to religion instead of walking with you. Father, I'm concerned because so many people that were so close to you, think of the Galatian church, I think of the church at Corinth, Lord, they they lost their way and they lost their joy and they lost their power even though they still did all the right stuff. Father, would you help us to find freedom? Would you help us to find joy and power? And Lord, as you transform us, may your work in our life be so evident that the people we rub shoulders with will also see your glory come to know you. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, let's, let's back up even further and get the backstory here. 400 years, like between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a 400-year span. And in that time, God has not spoken by prophet. So people are really wondering, what is God up to? And then the the people have been conquered, first by Babylon that took them out of the country, and then Cyrus the Great, Persian, sent them back, where they were conquered by Greece, and then by Rome. There was no king, but there remained a very proud, albeit very frustrated people. And so Jesus walks on the scene. And for those that dimly remember the old tradition, rabbinical writings, the the scriptures, they they dimly remember there's this guy that's supposed to come that's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he is supposed to restore the throne of David. He's supposed to usher Israel into a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity where the whole world will look at Israel, right? Right? And venerate and honor her. That hasn't happened for a very, very, very long time. In fact, nobody remembers when there was a king in Israel. So the Jews wanted this national renewal. And finally, after three years of teaching and all this rumblings, hey, there's this new rabbi and he's amazing. He doesn't mutter around and talk technicalities like the other rabbis. He talks with power. And he speaks as if he knows God. And believe it or not, he does stuff that only God could do. I don't know who this guy is, but he's amazing. And finally, Jesus shows up to Jerusalem. And there's this incredible hope. 
That just any day now, Jesus is going to declare himself the Messiah and the King. And he's going to kick out these rascal Romans. And we're going to start this brand new era. People are excited. Now, there are some Greeks, obviously not Jews, but there are Greeks. And they're at the, uh, the temple. They're here for a Jewish feast. So they, they value the Jewish religion. They value Yahweh. And they, they're wanting to understand. And, and they're hearing these rumors. And, and they get excited. So they seek out the disciples and say, hey, we want to know. We want to speak with Jesus. Now, how Jesus responds is highly instructive. Right? So we want to start by understanding Jesus as a glorious king. So Jesus welcomes them and says, now is my hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that sounds very positive. He's basically telling them, hey, you're in the right spot at the right time. Now is my time. After three and a half years, now this week, you're going to see me glorified. He was the king. He's the king of the world. And he's going to be glorified by the Father. Well, we got to back up because we don't use the word glory every day. All right? We talk about the glory of a battlefield, the glory of football players, or different glories, maybe the glory of the sun. Well, perhaps this crowd was thinking back to the psalm, Psalm 24. It says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Well, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. That psalm goes on to say, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. This is the one. So Jesus confirms, yeah, you are very much in the right place, and you will see me glorified. But in saying that, what do you think the disciples were thinking? What do you think the Greeks were thinking? Oh, this is great news. All right, we found the one we're looking for, somebody to solve our problems. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there, as you know. But in that moment, what do you think the Greeks were hoping that Jesus could do for them? It's it's speculation. The text doesn't tell us. But let me ask you, what do you, what do your neighbors, what does America need Jesus to do for them? Well, I think a couple of things. People come to Jesus, the glorious king, thinking he can help them. People feel trapped in their lives. And they're hoping that Jesus will empower them to move forward with their goals. They want help, don't they? They want help with their kids. Because, man, their kids are teenagers and they're distressed. They want help with their marriage. They want help with their job. Right? Maybe they're just lacking purpose. They're lacking joy. And they're hoping that maybe if they give themselves to the church or they give themselves to Jesus, then finally they can start to move forward. Which, similar but a little different. People seek restoration. Right? So some people feel stuck. They want to move forward. Some people are looking back and say, wow, it's a mess back there. They've made major mistakes and they don't know how to fix them. Right? They've hurt people. They've messed their life up and they're just kind of sitting around at home and it's lonely. Like, I, I don't know how to clean this up. Right? They feel trapped by enslaving habits or the consequences of their choices that have started to or have ruined their life. So where do you turn when the bottom falls out? A lot of people find the back pew of a church somewhere and say, I, I'm just hoping, I'm just hoping that it's not too late. That Jesus could bring restoration. Some people are seeking reward. Right, this is big. People come into this building, they come into services, and they think, well, if I become religious, maybe that'll give me an edge. 
Maybe if I give lots of money to the church, God will bless me. He'll reward me. Maybe if I read my Bible a lot, maybe if I donate to the church or I volunteer, God will give me what I really want. Right? There's something out there that I really want. I can't get there on my own. Maybe, maybe, you know, if I, if I do some things for God, he'll do some stuff for me. And that means realizing some sort of cherished dream. And many people come wondering what Jesus will give them. Now, I am nearly certain that all of us came to Christ in one of these three categories. Right? We were stuck. We needed forgiveness or restoration, or we were just hoping that Jesus could make our lives so much better. Now, what's interesting is what Jesus says next. He says, yes, you have come to the glorious one. And he doesn't say king, but he does say son of man. He's like, I am the Messiah, and I will be glorified. Verse 24, truly, I truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He says, okay, Jesus says, you're in the right place at the right time. The Son of Man's going to be glorified, but in death. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah, yeah, my path leads to a cross. And so, what was Jesus' invitation to these Greeks or anyone seeking him? He's saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to lead you through some kind of sinner's prayer. And Jesus never invited anyone to a church service. What does Jesus say? Follow me. You can see that in verse 26. If you want to serve Christ, you need to follow him. Now, I know, I know. We've got a, we got a pause. We've got a language thing going on here. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, in our day, that gets confusing because you can follow people all the time. You can follow them on Twitter or Facebook. And that means I am vaguely interested in you. So if you post anything on the Internet, you can just let me know. Right? That's like following just as has really been sharply reduced in our day and age. So what do you think Jesus meant right, by follow me? I think he was literal. I think he was saying, um, leave what you are doing and be with me. Today and tonight and tomorrow, just be with me. Hang out with me. Watch me. Ask. Learn. Be with me. But like physically, be with me. Now, in the ancient world, that was just a very common thing because you would have rabbis and they would go around and they would have disciples. And what what would those disciples do? Well, they would leave their homes, leave their family, leave their jobs, and they would walk around with that rabbi and you would learn by being in his presence. You would ask the rabbi questions. He would ask you questions. He would teach. And what would happen in time, if you hang out with anybody, you would become like him. And that that was the goal. So... Jesus very literally is saying, I need you to follow me. Now, what qualifies anyone to follow? Well, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. Okay? It just means you, you say, I find tremendous value in this person, and I, I, I'm going to follow them. I'm going I'm I'm to pick up my feet, and I'm going to walk where they're walking. Now, that, that is not hard. Now, it doesn't demand a lot of you. You don't come with, a, like, a fancy resume or a lot of, a lot of qualifications. But there is, there's a commitment, right? Like, I'm not there. I'm over here following you. Now, I, I want to note something interesting, that many people that started following Jesus didn't believe in him. 
So for a great portion of his ministry, they would follow because Jesus was a pretty exciting guy and he always did unpredictable things. And every now and then he'd preach a message that was so hard or so confusing, many, many people would just leave. But Jesus always invited people to come. Come close. Come learn of me and find the truth. And they would learn as they followed. And they would see glory and love and wisdom and forgiveness. And if they stayed with Jesus, they would commit themselves to him and they would come to find the truth, that he was indeed the Messiah. Now, I call this to your attention because we treat, um, we treat Jesus as some sort of transaction, right? Here's how it works. You offer Jesus a prayer, and he gives you salvation. Okay? And then you go on your merry way, living the life you were pre- previously living. And i got to tell you, that's not true. Jesus is not some sort of forgiveness vending machine where you, like, do your religious bit and then out comes, you know, rescue, deliverance. Jesus is not a doctor. Hey, Jesus, my, my world is all messed up. Oh, here, take this bottle of grace, take two every morning, and, and off you go. See me if anything goes wrong. Also, not, not the picture here. Jesus invites very broken people to trust and follow him. And those that follow... Those that draw near find out he is very much the glorious one. He is the king who can rescue and transform their lives. The Greeks were in the right spot. They had found the king. They were curious, and he invites them to follow. But notice the mood, right? Jesus, you don't get the sense of Jesus bouncing off the ground. Great you're here, guys. Boy, have I got a lot of exciting things to show you. Wow, the, the mood is somber. Jesus is talking about being glorified through death. So look back at 24 and 25. He says, if you want to follow me, you'll find true life. But that path means you're going to die. Okay, Jesus said a lot of hard things. This has got to be up there on the list. All right? Following Jesus requires death. And Jesus is always shocking people. And realistically, you should feel a little shocked. If you're not, you're asleep or you're not thinking, okay? Because this is hard, right? This is not, hey, why don't you follow Jesus? Well, what will that cost me? Well, you're going to have to die. Are you, are you a cult? <laughs> you're like, who are you? What's going on? Well, we need to understand carefully this, but feel the discomfort. Lean into it. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Well, follow you where, Jesus? Well, Jesus explains that. This is in all the Gospels. And Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Like, what? Jesus follow you where? To death? Yes. If you, maybe you've had this experience. You're trying to talk to people about Jesus and his plan to rescue and transform their lives, and they draw back. You've given them really good news. You're saying, hey, the God of the universe loves you, has a plan for your life, and right now is willing to forgive everything you've done wrong in the past. He's willing to give you the perfect record of Jesus, and he will walk with you every day of your life, and he'll transform you to make you like his son. And someday he's going to welcome you home to be with him forever, physically in his presence. Like, that's what comes out of your mouth, and people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Like, that's weird, right? You're offering people the world. You're offering them freedom for the rat race, and yet they they push away. Why? Because I think they know that following Jesus is going to cost them something. Right? Well, what does it cost to follow Jesus? 
We start here. You've got to die to your pride. So many people come to Jesus wanting to impress him. So we show our devotion, our good works, our talent, our money, and God says, I don't want any of it. Nothing. Right? Because if we think we follow God or we commit ourselves to his cause so he'll bless us, right? Jesus, I'll serve you, but now you owe me. Like an employer-employer relationship. Right? God, I'm here, I'm serving you, so now I deserve a better life. I deserve your help. No, coming to Jesus undercuts all of that, that, that very human tendency. Right? You don't earn God's blessing. Following Christ, you might have noticed, comes with no guarantee of financial investment. There, there's no guarantee of influence or status. Right? The, many of Jesus' disciples, the twelve, they followed him thinking, this is the new king, and someday we're going we're gonna to live in Jerusalem and we're going to be like vice president. I mean, it's going to be great. But it didn't work out that way. What, what happened to those that followed Jesus, those 12? Um, they got killed. Like, seriously? Yeah, yeah, read history. Almost all of them died, except for John, and he's exiled to Patmos. You see, following Jesus means killing your pride. It means losing your identity. You're no longer the good little boy or good little girl. You're no longer the expert. Your entire identity gets eclipsed by the king. You don't get to live for your advantage, your advancement. No, you live for the king. What does Jesus want? You come to me, and now your life is all about helping people see how great Jesus is and teaching them to trust and follow them. You live for the king. And you're just trusting that he's the one that will take care of you as you follow him. Second of all, it means you've got to die to your dreams. Many people... Many, many people hope that when they come to Jesus, that he will give them what they really wanted all along. They've got this dream. They've got this plan. And they're pretty sure that Jesus is the way to get there, but they end up very, very disappointed. Okay? Talk to the older people here. If you're like a student and you're like, I, man, I don't, I don't know, Pastor Sam. Talk to them. How many, how many dreams has God blown up in your life? All right, you remember being 20? I know that's a stretch for some of you. 40, maybe, maybe closer, okay? You remember back and you thought, you know what, life is going to look like this. Did it work out that way? No. Not, not anywhere close to those things. How many times has God allowed your dreams to crumble and fade? So if you're going to follow Jesus, it means abandoning control of your life. Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't tell you what the path is going to look like. These Greeks, he invites them to follow him into his death. Peter once rebuked Jesus for talking this way. And Jesus looks at him and said, get behind me, Satan. It's a proper name. It means adversary. But he's saying, Satan is is, is fueling this because Peter couldn't see the value of Jesus dying. And so we understand what Peter couldn't but maybe you don't understand why God has led you where you're at right now. That's reasonable. That's not, that's not unreasonable. So you see, following faith, uh, Jesus involves faith, but also letting go of control. Like Jesus, I don't know where you're going to lead me tomorrow. Following him means you believe that he's leading you to glory and that he will rescue you, he will transform you, he will use you, but your job is not to tell him how, it's just to follow. Lastly, you must die to your comfort. All right? So you're saying, 
yes, that following Jesus involves a loss of identity, a loss of dreams, and now you've probably figured out that Jesus is not overly concerned, primarily concerned with your comfort. He's willing to die. And he's asking his followers to pick up their cross. Now, that's a metaphor, but it's not at all comforting, right? The cross is that cross beam of wood that a prisoner would bear on their way to execution. Maybe um, German theologian from the 40s says this best. This is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon attachment to this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Wow. Okay, so let's, let's summarize, just in case you're not into older writing. Jesus invites us to follow him. He welcomes it. He says, follow me. But that invitation means dying to an old way of life. An identity, gone. Dreams, pride in our accomplishment, it's abandoned. We give up control of our lives and any demands that we have about happiness or comfort. And Jesus is serious. He says, follow me. And um, Keep going, keep following, no matter what happens. This is the cost of discipleship. Now, practically speaking, what a setup, huh? Who would follow Jesus this way? Seriously, wow. If these are the terms, do you still want to follow Jesus? I'm, I'm serious. Many times, Jesus' disciples would hear something like this, and they would just like leave in droves. Crowds welcoming him at the king of this chapter will be the same mob that calls for his execution because he bitterly disappointed them. So let's let the stress hang in the air for a moment. Right? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Let go of your control and expectations. Are you willing to follow Jesus anywhere? Even if that means following him into the middle of what you're facing right now. It's not a mistake. Truly hard, but it's not a mistake, right? I'm going to invite you to keep following and not to give up. Who on earth would follow Jesus if it meant death? Well, there's only one answer, and that is if you realize you've made a mess of your life, you're incompetent to make things better, and you're unable to change, then you come to Jesus. You tell the king, hey, I'm broken. And I don't want to be the God of my life anymore. You follow him because he is glorious and kind and wise and forgiving. So you give your life to Jesus and you begin following him because he's the king. And you follow wherever he's going because he promises to lead you to glory. This is a beautiful, beautiful invitation. Because following Jesus leads to life. Jesus says that life is like a seed grain of wheat. It's small and insignificant by itself. And yes, you can try to keep it, but if you hang on to seeds long enough, what happens? They rot. They become worthless. However, if you plant the seed into the ground, something remarkable happens. New life springs up. Yes, the old seed will undergo radical transformation. The soil will dissolve its outer shell. The seed will be split in half. It will be completely lost. But what comes out of it is a new plant. 
something vibrant, alive, and fruitful. It's beautiful. And so Jesus is telling us alone, we're going to live lives of frustration and futility. But in him, he's going to give life that will be replaced with something that is redeemed and transformed and powerful, powered by himself. So let's consider what Jesus does for those who follow him. Remember those people who gave up their identity and their dreams and their control, their comfort? Well, Jesus starts by giving glory. It's maybe my favorite. Why do we want control of our lives? Well, we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to build a legacy. And Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll give you my name. I will discard your ragged attempt to be important, and I will welcome you into my family. I will call you sister and brother. God will call you daughter and son. We are Christians. That means little Christ. And God calls us chosen and precious. You know what that means? It means if you give up your life to the world, right? If you give your life to a company, what happens? Well, they'll celebrate your retirement. Give you a watch. It's nice. (laughs) Give yourself to your kids. They may appreciate you, but there is no guarantee of that. Give your life to society or your community. They might name a building for you. That's it? Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. That's the gig. For a lifetime of work, you're saying there is no guarantee of success and whatever you gain will be very quickly forgotten. The payday doesn't last. It's not lastingly satisfying. But if you come to Jesus at the beginning, at the, at the beginning, at the start, he gives you an identity that cannot be lost and he guarantees your success. You're a child of God. You're the bride of Jesus. You're a royal priest and you will rule and reign someday with him. What do you have to do to earn that kind of favor? Well, nothing. Because that kind of favor can't be earned. But it is given to those that give their broken lives to the Savior and say, I will follow you, because the Savior makes everything new. Second of all, Jesus gives purpose. Right? Yes, coming to God does mean the surrender of your dreams. But notice what Jesus gives to those who follow him. Verse 24. Those that give their lives to Christ are given new life and they produce much fruit, right? Because now you're connected to Jesus. You've got the Spirit of God. You don't do the work, but the Spirit changes you and he fills you. Like you become radically different, filled with love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and endurance and self-control. The stuff that you wanted but could not produce, the Spirit now produces in you. And that makes you a radically different person. Right? You're called to Christ's work of restoration. You're restoring the world one person at a time. You invest yourself in others. You love and speak the truth. You invite other people to quit their rat race and stop living in futility. You see people reconciled to the Father and you watch them be transformed. You're part of helping this new family grow and change. And this family has the power to transform entire cities and regions. Notice verse 26. Those who serve with Jesus are honored by God. And that's amazing because Jesus gives you his power. He guides you. He is the one that makes you successful and the Father turns around and honors you. That's amazing. That's glorious. You want a legacy? How about laying down this broken body at the end of your life and hearing the thunderous voice of God call out, well done, good, faithful servant. You are faithful in little. Come, be faithful in much. 
Life gets bigger. I'll give you something substantial to do. Can you imagine this? I'll admit I can't, but there's even more. Jesus gives eternal life. Verse 25 says, those that give up their fleeting and frustrating life discover eternal life. Right? If you met these people that try to live their best life now, they're always frustrated. They have those little pings of happiness. But man, they're just too far apart. Now, if you walk with the God of the universe, he comforts our hearts. You see, the vacations grow old, and people disappoint us, and the body goes numb with things that used to excite us. But the appetites, the passions, they can't be satisfied in a lasting way. You give yourself the passions, you'll always be restless. But Christ gives new life, and that life starts now, today. Our, yes, our, our outer body wastes away, but because of the Spirit, our, our soul is renewed day by day. So we walk with the God of the universe, and he comforts our hearts. He makes us bold. He gives us joy. And someday, we do have the privilege of laying down this cursed body, and God restores it and gives it back. And now we live the life we were always designed to live in perfection. We never die. We live the life designed for us, which means no pain and no disappointment and no goodbyes. And this is your best life. And it is waiting for you. We've got to wrap up here. Let me just ask, are you following Jesus? Please don't be like the Israelites who started to follow God out of Egypt and complained every step of the way. We're always saying, we want to go back. Love you. Would you take stock of your heart? Some of you are very much there. You feel trapped, not joy, from Jesus. Don't argue with Jesus about where he's leading you or how he wants to change you. Your faith, your following Jesus has nothing to do with a prayer that you said years ago. Your life... Yes, your life did, it did begin when you started following Jesus, when you called out in faith and you gave your life to him. You asked to be rescued, you committed to following Jesus, and now he's working to lead you home. And as you walk with Christ, you'll make other disciples by inviting people also to follow Jesus. And yes, they'll come with their doubts and fears. And they won't believe at first, but they'll spend time with you and they'll see Jesus. And as they see him through your radically changed life, they will come to know the Father. Christ will conquer their doubts. He'll fill them with his love. You see, we, as a church family, are Christ's body. We're his hands and feet. And our neighbors are going to know Jesus. They're going to have to spend time with us. Seeing love, seeing faith, seeing boldness, truth. But they will not see that if you're filled with fear and complaint, looking everywhere but Jesus for happiness. The New Testament invites you to follow Jesus, allowing him to heal you, transforming you so that everyone who sees you will experience your good works, your kindness, they'll glimpse the Father. They'll be called into the family of God. Let's just end with this quote by C.S. Lewis. He wrote, imagine yourself as a living house. Now, God comes to rebuild that house. And at first, you can kind of understand what he's doing. right? He's, he's getting the drains right. He's stopping up the leaks in the roof and so on. And now, you knew those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't make any sense. And what is he up to? Right? 
The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought God wanted to make you into a decent little cottage. No, but he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it for himself. We need to talk to God about this text. Okay? Christ, he replaces every loss with something far better. And so if you're hurting today, talk to the Father. Ask him to heal you, forgive you, and help you grow. Some of you are in a different spot. You need to stop trying to be in control and fighting God and rather follow him. All of us know someone who needs to hear this truth. Can we just take a moment, speak to the Father about this, then I'll lead us together. Father, we come as your children. Lord, and in this moment, we feel gratitude. We thank you for telling us no to things that would harm us. We thank you for rescuing us from futility and giving us purpose. We thank you for taking away cheap trinkets and giving us things that matter for eternity. Lord, we thank you for stopping us from pursuing cheap pleasure to find lasting satisfaction in you. Father, our hearts continue to doubt. We're nervous about walking a road we can't see. We have our fears. We have our hurts. And it is difficult to follow you into the unknown. Father, this text is glorious. We know the truth. We know how this story ended for you. You did die, but the Father raised you and put you at the right hand, and you are all glorious, and now you invite us into that glory. Father, would you conquer our fear, our doubt? Would you free us to follow you boldly with confidence? And Lord, as we live out this truth, would we be changed in such a way that we are a bright light in a very dark community? Not dark and that it's horrible, but so many people are missing hope and they don't know where to go. Lord, may we follow you so well that people can follow us and find you. Lord, have your way with us. May we follow you. You're the only one who is worthy of our lives and won't break us. We love you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.